please turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 6. I think I told Corey the wrong verse earlier, the wrong chapter. Mark chapter 6. And we will be um, in, we're going to start in verse 12 and go all the way to verses 29. So 12 to 29. Mark chapter 6, verse 12. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. This is why miraculous signs are at work with him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I have beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask of me, I will give to you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry but because of his oath and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Would you bow your heads in prayer with me? Gracious Father, we gather here tonight to taste and to know that you are good. We are here to be fed by your word and to be satisfied. Jesus, we look to you as our great forerunner. Intercede for our weak faith. And we ask that you would strengthen our limp hands and steady our feeble knees. Holy Spirit, encourage us where we are weak and humble us where we are strong. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear you today. In Jesus' mighty name, we ask these things. Amen. 
What must we do to be saved? What must we know or believe? Or the more pointed question, what is the cost? Jesus describes discipleship as taking up a cross and following him. He says that to save our lives, we must first lose them. Now, these are undoubtedly difficult sayings. And as we consider what they mean, as we look at the testimony of John's life, there will be a temptation to belittle the call of discipleship. A temptation to water it down or to reinterpret what it means that we might maybe feel better about ourselves. But my prayer tonight is that we would come to know our Savior more deeply and more greatly by considering our walk with Him. When we study the Bible, one of the basic questions we have to ask is, what does this text or what does this story mean? But a second question of equal importance is, why here? Why does Mark choose to put the story of John in this particular place? You see, in Mark chapter 1, John, or Mark had mentioned John that he was arrested, but he waits five entire chapters to tell us why he's been arrested. Now, I think we can find the answer by looking at what comes before and what comes after our story. You see, before our story, Jesus is sending out the 12 apostles to proclaim the gospel. And after our story, the 12 apostles have come back to Jesus and have told him all the things that they had done. And therefore, by sandwiching the, the story of John between the mission of the disciples and the return of the disciples, Mark wants us to understand this, that John the Baptist is a picture of what it looks like to be a disciple on mission. That is, John the Baptist is a picture of what it looks like to be a disciple on mission. It is a model and an expectation of what it looks like to follow Jesus. Now, in our story, there are really two main characters that kind of um, are uh, contrary to one another in many ways. We have Herod on the one hand and John the Baptist on the other. Now, one is a follower of this world and the other one is a follower of Christ. And both of them have lessons for us this evening. But I would like to focus on King Herod. And here I want to look at one particular question this evening. And it's this. What keeps Herod and us from knowing, believing, and obeying Jesus? What keeps Herod and us from knowing, believing, and obeying Jesus? And so we move to consider the, the first point for this evening, and it's this. Because sin keeps us from knowing Jesus, we must humble ourselves before God. After walking with Jesus for a time and listening to his teachings about the kingdom of God and seeing him perform many miracles, Jesus begins to send out the 12 disciples. And with nothing more than the clothes on their back, the message of the forgiveness of sins, and the authority of the Son of God, the disciples go throughout the surrounding area proclaiming repentance and performing miracles. And at this time, our text picks up saying that this message of repentance of Jesus has reached the, air, the ears of King Herod. 
Now, if we know anything about King Herod, he is the ruler of Galilee. However, he's actually technically not a king, um, for the Roman emperor at the time vowed not to give him that title. But the fact that Herod is called king in our text reflects a popular use of the term, since for all intents and purposes, he was the ruler of the land. Herod, though, according to history, um, from the account of Josephus, who's a um, historian in the first century, um, saw that Herod had a rigid pursuit to be recognized as king. And this actually would lead to his eventual exile. But as the ruler of the area, he was sensitive to new religious movements that caused any sort of uprisings. It is no doubt that an incoming kingdom of God would not only put Herod on edge, but would especially annoy the person who would do anything to be called king. This Jesus figure has come to the ear of Herod, but no one really knows who Jesus is at this point. Three offers are put forth and three really fall short. Some say that Herod is John the Baptist, raised from the dead. Well, why John? See, in the ancient mindset, it was more likely that a, a ghost or somebody who had been raised from the dead was performing miracles that somebody was living. A second option is um, this Jesus figure has to be Elijah because many Jews at the time expected Elijah to come back before the great um, day of judgment. And lastly, we get a third option, which is Jesus is just a prophet. A prophet, maybe like Moses or Joshua, who performed many miracles. But there's an odd thing in our text. There's only one person in our story who's confident that he knows the identity of Herod. To Herod, the Jesus figure has to be John the Baptist. But why is he so confident? Herod was convinced that John was raised to the dead and is seeking retribution for his beheading. His guilty conscience says that he will have to answer to God for this murder. And here we learn what sin does when it encounters conviction. You see, Herod hears about John, and instead of repenting, he responds in fear. He makes no move to know more about this person, no ambition to become a follower of someone who is obviously sent from God. Herod has a fear of John, but not a fear of God. And Mark wants to teach us that what keeps us from knowing Jesus is not his testimony, but it is ourselves. It is our inclination to distance ourselves from the truth that we do not want to hear. Let me say that again. What keeps us from knowing Jesus is ourselves. It is our inclination to distance ourselves from any truth we do not want to hear. Our consciences will have us believe anything rather than the truth that Jesus is the great Savior of the world. If we acknowledge who Jesus is, our gig is up. For we would have to acknowledge several things. For one, that we are not the final authority in our life. That there is somebody we have to answer to for our wrongdoings. That we, no matter how strong we think we are, cannot save ourselves. And the problem that we face, unbelievers and Christians alike, is that we don't want to face this reality. We would rather save 
face. But if we really think about it, and we're honest, I think we are terrified of who we really are. Fearful that someone would find out that we are not as good as we say we are. Who would ever accept us if they saw us stripped away from the makeup that we are constantly putting over our lives? And let me ask you a question to illustrate this. Do you find it easier to expose your heart to other people or to defend your heart? Is it easier to say that you were wrong or easier to lie and defend your actions? And I have a suspicion, especially in my own life, that I spend more of my energy upholding a false self-image with the one goal of not being found out by others. And the reality is, is that there is one person who knows us and knows us more than we know ourselves, and that is God. All failures, every hidden deed, every vile thought, every impulse of your heart. And if you are a Christian, he looks at you in the eye in light of these things, and he still says, mine. God is pleased to put his seal upon our hearts and call you his, no matter how ugly we are. And if you are in Christ... God no longer looks at the old you, but he looks at you as holy, as redeemed, as reconciled, made alive, born again, recreated, and loved. Church, God delights in forgiving our sins, and he delights in healing brokenness. And here we must renounce sin and come to know that in the Christian life, that the way up is really the way down. That to increase, we must first decrease. That to have nothing is to possess all. That to bear the cross is really to wear the crown. And it is only in the depths that we see the true heights. Therefore, humble yourselves. Confess your wayward hearts and present them to the God who makes all things new. So we have seen that sin keeps us from knowing the truth about Jesus. But there are many people who know Jesus, but don't believe what he says he is. It is interesting that up until Mark chapter 6 in our text, the only person or thing that has rightly identified Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God, are the demons in chapter 5. And this reality shows us that sin keeps us from not only knowing Jesus, but it keeps us from believing who he really is. And this is our second point for the evening, that sin keeps us from believing in Christ. And here we move to consider verses 16 through 20, which is a flashback of the details um, that consider John's beheading. And here Mark notes that Herod had John in prison for the sake of Herodias because she hated John calling out their unlawful marriage. Now, their marriage is really an interesting one. It, also, it often uh, puzzles many scholars because there's so many people who have the same names and during that time. But the historian Josephus tells us that Herod had divorced, had divorced his wife, 
to marry Herodias, and Herodias divorced her husband to marry Herod. Now, Herodias' former husband was also Herod's half-brother. Um, it gets more interesting when we consider that Herodias is also Herod's niece. Um, so two divorces to make one marriage, and John had been saying to Herod that this is an unlawful marriage according to Levitical law. Now, why is this important? Well, although Herod was a Roman-appointed um, king, he was a professing Jew as well. But obviously, as our text indicates, this doesn't seem to be very authentic. Um, but Herod's new wife, Herodias, could not stand John. But in an odd twist, Mark notes that Herod would not let her kill him. And it gives us an odd reason. It says, Herod knew John was a righteous and holy man. And so he could not come to kill this holy man of God. He couldn't risk allowing him to still be out in public, making these professions and calling out Herod, but neither could he bring himself to kill him. Now, this is illustrated for us because many people who don't believe in God or maybe profess Christ but aren't committed to him, for some reason are still willing to obey some of his commandments. As if God would grant them some abatement or reprieve on the day of judgment. They would say something like, well, I'm not as bad as some other people. But when pressed into difficult situations, these people would renounce any conviction as if they've never had it. And in Herod, we see what a great way a man may go to grace and glory and fall short of both and perish eternally. But as Christians, we can learn from this as well. Herod's willingness to arrest John but not kill him is not the moral high ground that he thinks it is. How many times as Christians do we say, I will go this far, but no further. Sure, I might uh, cheat on my taxes a little bit, maybe disobey my parents' wishes, um, entertain my lustful desires, maybe I'll tell a white lie to my spouse, but I would never do fill in the blank. We justify small sins, but I wouldn't be caught doing this one thing. We act as if small sins against an infinite God does not deserve an infinite punishment. On the other hand, we have the account of John. John, like the prophets of old, believes that the word of God is greater than any persecution that the world could bring. In prison, the temptation is great to water down his message. Herod is often visiting John to listen to him. And John can easily try to, try to befriend Herod or even maybe just stop calling Herod to repentance. All he had to do to get out of prison was to be silent. Now, how often do we find ourselves in this situation? We won't go along with somebody's sin, but we don't seek to restore them either. Instead, we take a middle road what we call the road of tolerance in our age. We won't affirm abortion, gay marriage, maybe cohabitation, but neither will we call it out. We are just silent to our friends or to our family. And in our disobedience, we won't tell people that they're going to hell, but in our silence, we lead them along in the way. If we seek to please men at the expense of their salvation, we have to question who we are following. 
The difference between us and John is that John is besieged with a conviction that the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world has arrived in real time in history. He's commanded to herald the message of repentance and he cannot go along and he will not be silent. He must preach an uncompromised gospel and live an uncompromised life. If John were to have given in, if he were to just stop calling Herod to repentance, the witness of John to the Lamb of God would have lost its power. As long as John was confident, even in the face of death, Herod would know that John believed the message that he preached. That the fear of death has no place in the presence of an eternal God. Church, God has chosen to perfume the world with the gospel of Christ through the obedience of his disciples. And our message requires and mandates the highest fidelity. Therefore, we are urged by Paul to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel that we have received. We come now to consider our last point for the evening. This is where we see Herod's morality put to the test, his weakness of character exploited by his new wife. And we will see what happens to a man when he is more concerned with the opinion of other people rather than the opinion of God. And this is the point I want to make, that because sin keeps us from obeying Christ, we must trust in our new identity. Because sin keeps us from obeying Christ, we must trust in our new identity. Now this section narrates the occasion that brought about John's death. It is the climax of our narrative. Mark begins by noting an opportunity has arisen. You see, Herod was throwing a birthday banquet for all the people that loved and respected him. All that ran the one-fourth of his kingdom that he was over. Top brass, the upper class of society, commanders and leading men. It was the wealthy and the powerful. But while Herod was celebrating, Herodias was plotting. Herodias seized the opportunity to leverage Herod's trembling hand. By sacrificing the honor of her daughter, Herodias gains the flattery of the men and secured an oath from the king. Rather than half of the kingdom, she demanded the instant beheading of John and its proof to be delivered on a platter. Now Herod, trembling between this power block of men and his conviction not to kill John the Baptist, his morality is set to the furnace. His fear of man exceeds his fear of God, and he grants the request. You see, Herod had a knowledge of God, but not a belief in God, and so that he could not obey God in this trial. But this conflict is actually a little more nefarious. You see, his offer of half a kingdom was ingenuous, for he was just a puppet and really had no power to give this away. In fact, we can safely assume that if Herodias' daughter agreed to half the kingdom, you know for sure that Herod would have found some way out of his oath, just like he did 
his marriage. You see, the problem was not the breaking of the oath. The problem was that he chose to follow the praises of men. He is the antithesis of John who spoke truth even at the risk of his life. Church, when we don't believe in a divine reality, your identity is defined by an earthly reality. Just like a nation is not a nation unless other nations recognize it as such, so too Herod was not a king without the people that sat around him. He was utterly dependent, enslaved to their opinion of him. Likewise, if we don't believe in God, we enslave ourselves to the opinion of others. Our identities are tossed into the costume party of life. And here we seek to give ourselves a name by shackling our identity to those whose respect we covet. We crave the affirmation of those we look up to that we may be identified by them or even with them. For Christians, we are caught in this cross pressure between what others think of you and what God says of you. And the way we walk in obedience if we find ourselves caught in this place, is to remember your crucifixion with Christ. What do I mean by this? Nothing spoke more ill of us than the cross. This is where the abomination of our sin and the repulsiveness of our iniquity was laid bare. And here, no one comes near criticizing you and judging you more intensely, more deeply, and more pervasively than the cross. But at that same cross, we are rendered eternally justified and accepted. Here, we are given a new name by God, adopted into a new family, destined for a new creation and brought into a new kingdom free from sin and alive to righteousness, just as no one can separate us from the love of Christ, no one can separate us from our identity in Christ. You see, the name above all names has given us a new name. Now the whole world can stand against you, they can denounce you, they can criticize you, but you will be able to reply to them, if God has justified me, then who can condemn me. So as we close tonight, I have waited until the end to address a towering conundrum that we find in our text. And this is the conundrum. Jesus has said that John was the greatest man who had ever lived up until this time. He was the greatest man, the greatest prophet, but not only that, John was Jesus' cousin. He's a relative. He's the forerunner to the greatest event in history, the incarnation of the Son of God. He was a great disciple, one of the most faithful. He was the first to confess that Jesus was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But we are left with a lingering question. How can the greatest prophet, a great disciple, a cousin of Jesus, how can such a man of great importance be left alone in jail, executed by an illegitimate king 
in an illegitimate marriage and by the impulsive offer following a scandalous dance. How could God let this happen? The inevitable suffering that results in discipleship to Jesus is not an abandoned is not a sign of the abandonment by God, but a sign of fellowship. Let me say that again. The suffering that comes in our discipleship to Jesus is not a sign of abandonment, but a sign of fellowship. Fellowship with the God who purchased our salvation through the suffering of himself on the cross. We, church, are given the blessing of Christian death that we may commune in the suffering of our Savior and become like him in his death. Mark wants us to know that whoever would follow Jesus must first consider the fate of John the Baptist. But not just consider his death. Don't focus on the death of John, but focus on the obedience of John that led to eternal life. If we participate in the sufferings of Christ, we know that we will participate in his resurrection. You see, church, Jesus never promised us to save us from death, but he promises to raise us up in it. And this is the hope in the very next verse, where Herod's banquet is followed by a much, much greater banquet. And that's the feeding of the 5,000. Here, not Herod, but Jesus presides as king. Not in a fortress, but on rolling hills. Not for the wealthy, but for the poor. And not for a celebration, but to feed the hungry. Not ending in death, but in life. And here we are given a picture We're given a taste of the final banquet where the bride of Christ in heaven with all splendor and with all majesty meets her Savior. Where we will behold while being beheld. And I leave you with the words of John the Apostle in the book of Revelation. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Would you pray with me? Father, may we come to know, believe, and obey like we've never done before. And as we move into our time of prayer, may you give us a deep and abiding repentance and a deep and abiding love for you and your church. And we ask this in the everlasting name of Christ Jesus. Amen.